Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled Prayer Works. I was reading through 2 Corinthians this week as a part of my devotional studies, something that I felt compelled to do as it had been some time since I had read through that particular epistle and To be quite frank, I had gotten rusty on that epistle in my own mind, my own understanding, and I thought, I need to work on this particular Pauline epistle. I need to read through it and to study it. And right off the bat, as I was studying through that epistle, something struck me as very encouraging from chapter 1. This statement had to do with prayer and served to remind me once again just how important prayer actually is and how powerful it is in our lives. The statement is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. 2 Corinthians 1.11. In this passage, the Apostle Paul says, Ye also, helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, Thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Did you catch the first statement that the Apostle Paul said in that verse? Now, it's a longer sentence, and the wording of it can be a little confusing and hard to decipher on your first read. But notice the first thing that he said in this sentence. Ye also helping together by prayer for us. These people had prayed for the Apostle Paul, and their prayers for him helped him. On our broadcast today, we want to first give you a basic exposition of this passage, including the context leading up to it, and then I want to share some examples from Scripture demonstrating this principle. And lastly, there are a couple of connected notions that I want to speak to in order to give you some clarification on this subject of prayer and praying for one another. So, our passage, 1 Corinthians 1.11, Ye also helping together by prayer for us. The saints had prayed for the Apostle Paul, and in doing so, they had helped him. Now, here are some important contextual details that would be helpful for you to know about Paul and his relationship with the church at Corinth. Number one, the Apostle Paul was the founding pastor, the founding minister of the church at Corinth, and he stayed there, laboring there, for some one and a half years as their pastor. After Paul had departed from Corinth to go on to labor in other places, to constitute new churches, to go about the rest of his ministry, another man named Apollos labored there, and he served there. Now, this brings us to the next point that I want to present to you today. This church, like all real churches, is made up of regenerated people who had professed Christ and been baptized— But they were, at times, very spiritually immature. Because of that, Paul wrote an earlier epistle to them correcting their behavior. 
Now, I mentioned Paul pastoring them and founding them, and I mentioned the next pastor that they would have, a man named Apollos. We find Apollos coming into the church in the book of Acts. He knew only the baptism of John. He was a disciple of John, and he was an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures. He was taken by Aquila and Priscilla. They expounded unto him the way of the Lord more perfectly, and he began his personal ministry. Apparently, there was some sort of a rift in that church. Some people who favored Paul, some people who favored Apollos, some who favored Cephas, that is to say, Simon Peter, and some who said they were of Jesus. Now, whether they were sincerely of Jesus or maybe they were just renegades who wanted nothing to do with any pastoral authority, only wanting to follow Jesus, which would be to violate his commandments, because Jesus has sent men into the world to preach to us and to help us. This church was in a lot of trouble because of that. Some said, I'm of Paul, some of Apollos, and Paul would remind them throughout 1 Corinthians, the early chapters at least, that he and Apollos were fellow laborers. He planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, and there was no sort of a rift between these two men. Likewise, there should not be a rift between the church over these two men. Such things are carnal, Churches have pastors, and by the way, your pastor is the man that God has sent into your life to instruct you. He didn't give you bloggers and celebrity preachers and preachers on YouTube and other preachers of other areas. He didn't give you boss preachers or big-name preachers or special event preaching preachers to be the man of God in your life to come and to instruct you with the Word. He gave your pastor. And if you don't go to a church and you don't have a pastor, I would encourage you to get one as quickly as possible. Find a good man of God, find a good congregation, and grow in the Lord through the means of God's Word. That's what God's will is for our lives. This church had so many more issues than that, though. These people were spiritually immature. Paul called them yet carnal. He said they were carnal Christians. Some people believe that that can't be, that can't exist a carnal Christian, and yet in the church at Corinth, there were Christians who were carnal. That doesn't mean they were unregenerate. It doesn't mean that they were just as sinful and wicked as before they were regenerated. No, quite the contrary. The new birth makes a real permanent difference in a person's life. But their behavior was carnal. They were spiritually immature. And because of that, Paul writes 1 Corinthians to deal with their problems. You had loose church discipline, you had people glorying over sin issues, you had people suing one another in the church. There were all sorts of problems there. People were abusing their Christian liberty. There were people there who were eating things, sacrificed to idols in the temples of the idols. And while there's nothing real about an idol— at the same time, we don't want to lead a fellow believer astray by actively going to an we don't want to lead a fellow believer astray by going to a temple and eating something sacrificed to an idol. I suppose the worst of all of the problems here at Corinth was that they had certain people here who were denying the resurrection of the dead. And that was the most severe of the problems that they were experiencing at the time because that's heretical. It can destroy the church. If we don't rise from the grave, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ is not risen, then our faith is vain because the resurrection of our bodies at the end of time is inseparably linked, connected, if you will, 
with the resurrection of Christ. So because he rose again, we know that we will rise again. And if the dead rise not, then he is not risen and our faith is vain. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We are of all men most miserable if Christ did not rise from the dead. Number three, contextual details, I should say, about this church. The fact that there is a second Corinthians that includes statements of affirmation and praise to this church, well, it speaks to God's mercy and it speaks to God's forgiveness. You might be surprised when you read 1 Corinthians, that there is a 2 Corinthians, or for listeners that might be in the UK, 2 Corinthians, as this is called by those who are across the pond, as it were. But here in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul thanks them. He tells them that they helped him and his fellow laborers by praying for him. Now, when he send that letter to them. Some of them were agitated. They were angry. He doesn't have any doubts about their salvation. When he writes to them in chapter 1, he says they're called to be saints and that God will confirm them unto the end blameless unto the second coming of Jesus. There's no doubt in his mind about these people, but he does offend them. They are for a moment offended at him. He made them sorry, but this was not a sorrow as the world brings it, this was a sort of godly sorrow that led to repentance not to be repented of, and it led to the deliverance of that particular church body. And so the fact that there is a 2 Corinthians with affirmation, and it's a very beautiful thing that speaks to God's mercy, God's grace, and God's forgiveness. Number four, and as we'll explore in a moment, Paul writes this at a time of personal affliction suffering that he was enduring for the gospel's sake. Let's dig into the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. Verse 4, Who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. The who there that comforts us in all tribulation is God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. And this God of all comfort comforts us in all of our tribulation, all of our afflictions, all of our troubles, all of our sufferings in this world. The Lord comforts these people, Paul, his fellow laborers, me and you, when we look to him. God comforts us in the midst of our suffering. Verse 5 For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. These sufferings were the sufferings of Christ. Paul experienced the sufferings of Christ. Well, this doesn't mean that Paul shared in the suffering of Jesus that Jesus experienced on the cross that led to and caused the salvation of his people. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying here. However, think back to when Jesus first came to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. What did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, had Paul ever physically done anything cruel to Jesus himself? Not that we know. Scripture doesn't record such. Someone could try to make the case that he was on the Sanhedrin at the time that Jesus was tried, but what Jesus had reference to there was the persecution of Saul against Jesus' people. Saul of Tarsus 
persecuted Jesus' people. And because of that, he was actually persecuting Jesus, in a sense. Because Jesus' people belonged to him. Now also, thinking back to what Jesus said in the upper room, there are people who will persecute the people of Christ because, not of the people of Christ themselves, but because these unregenerates and wicked people hate Jesus. And so they will persecute the people of God because they hate the God to whom the people belong. And so in both of those senses, when God's people suffer, they are suffering the afflictions of Christ. They are suffering as the people of God for the cause of Christ. As people persecuted Paul then, as he references here in 2 Corinthians 1, he was suffering for Christ, and his persecutors were persecuting Christ, ultimately, as they tormented him and as they tormented other of the people of the Lord. And so these are the sufferings of Christ that abounded in the Apostle Paul. Verses 6 through 10 dealt with Paul being an example to them, either of comfort or hardship. And he refers to the suffering so great in Asia that it was as if he had a death sentence on himself. Notice this. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. That speaks of deliverance or salvation in such a construct as to say we have experienced past tense deliverance, present tense deliverance, and future tense deliverance. Please understand that the word deliver or save in the Bible is used in such a broad way that it has reference to any deliverance we have from anything that was terrible. Many times in the Psalms in particular, the word save has reference to being delivered from the enemies of the psalmist. The psalmist called upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall he be saved from his enemies. God has delivered us, he does deliver us, and he will yet deliver us. Now here's where we come to our verse, ye also helping together by prayer for us. Paul was in affliction, and because this church at Corinth prayed for him, he was delivered from some of the sufferings which he endured. Now, that's the backstory of this passage that we consider today. And so we come to our main statement, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11, that the church at Corinth helped. They helped the apostle Paul by praying for him. Help that without their prayers maybe would not have come in the same way that it did. Now, here's a point that I want to illustrate from this passage. We live in such a hostile, cynical age that 
we might not realize the significant impact prayer has on the world around us. Or perhaps I should say that God's answering of our prayers have on the world around us. You see, regarding that point, my words don't have inherent power themselves, but the God who loves me and hears them, he answers, and he has all power. Sometimes believers have made the point in error that because we're made in God's image and we belong to him, that our voice as his voice, his word, has creative power. In the beginning God said, and there was, Jesus calls the dead from death unto life. Jesus speaks to the storm, peace be still, and it is still. Sometimes people will assert that you and I have that same power too to declare reality around us, but that's not the case. My words, though they are impactful, they can lift people up, they can encourage people, they can deliver you from fear and grant you assurance as God uses them to do so. My words have no power. They have no power in and of themselves to impact reality. When I pray, the force that impacts the reality around me is the Lord in heaven hearing those prayers and then answering those prayers in accordance with his will. Now, regarding that statement, in accordance with his will, we know through the word of God that the Lord answers in accordance with his will. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. When we go into a place, we shouldn't say, I'm going to stay here so long and buy and sell and get gain. For what I should say is, if God's will, I will do this or that. That's the case. That's the truth. That's the reality. It's not always God's will to say yes, but God always hears my prayer. He's always listening to me, and regardless of what happens, He's going to help me. Now, the answer might be no, and God helps me with the situation, the grace to bear it. God may say yes and alleviate the situation. We've all been in both cases, but... It is the power of God who hears the prayer that makes prayer effectual, that makes it effective and powerful in the world. Now, the latter part of this verse, verse 11, the gift that was bestowed upon us by means of many persons, that had reference to some sort of a package, maybe a financial blessing that that congregation had sent to the Apostle Paul. There's an allusion to that in the book of 1 Corinthians, as Paul says, on the first day of the week, when you lay by in store what you have purposed in your heart to give for his ministry and for the furtherance of the ministry, the gift that Paul references more than likely has reference to something they sent for his support so he could continue his ministerial journeys. And as he says here, he's very thankful for that, but he is especially thankful for their helping him in their prayer life. Now, let's focus on how prayer helps in our broadcast today. I think probably the most famous passage in all of the Bible on the subject of prayer and praying is found in the book of James chapter 5. And you could probably quote that passage with me. You could probably quote that passage for me. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We recently have spoken about this passage here on Words of Grace, especially the first part of this passage. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We emphasize that point that we owe it to one another to pray for our faults. And to know about a fault means we have to confess our faults. And the church is most definitely a hospital for sinners to come in and to find 
healing for their wounds, the sin issues they deal with, the pain of their past, whatever the problem is, we come into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and we find healing. We find rest to our souls when we confess our faults and then we pray for one another that we may be healed. But notice this little statement at the end of James 5.16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Effectual fervent prayer avails much. It's effective. It is powerful. I love the term fervent here in this passage because it communicates to us heat, intensity, warmth. It's not just something that we haphazardly say. James warns in chapter 1 against the double-minded man and how he should not think that he's going to receive that which he prays for. This isn't a double-minded prayer. It's not sort of a mumbling out, a gibberish prayer, half-heartedly, but this is very intentional, and it avails. It accomplishes. It's powerful. It's effective. When God's people pray, amazing things happen. Notice a chapter back along the lines of that point, that when God's people pray, things happen. Notice a chapter backwards, James chapter 4. James says, You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, you fight in war. Listen, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. There were things that they could have had in the congregation to which James writes that they didn't have because they didn't ask. You could have had certain blessings in this life, but you did not ask for them. And because you did not ask for them, you didn't receive them. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, but you did not pray. You did not ask. I would be ashamed and embarrassed and probably depressed if I knew all the things that God would have been pleased to give me had I only asked the Lord for his help. We have not so many times because we ask not. We'll come back to this point, but in short, there are things that we could have had, but we don't because we simply didn't ask. Further, James' audience, when they did ask, asked in their carnality to consume things in their lust. James warns about wealth and coveting and forsaking the poor in this epistle. In America, we conveniently discard many of these statements, but they're in the Bible. We have not because we ask not, and we're more interested in consuming things upon our lusts. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. It's no wonder then that Jesus taught that men ought to always pray and never to faint in the parable of the unjust judge. In that parable from Luke chapter 18, a widow woman comes to a judge who doesn't fear God and he doesn't fear man. He doesn't care what anybody thinks about him or any of his decisions, but this widow woman comes to him over and over and over, and she asks him to avenge her of her adversaries. And because he grows weary of listening to her, he gets tired of hearing her. She's annoying him. She's bothering him. Finally, he gives in just so the woman will leave him alone. And that parable begins with the statement that Jesus taught it that men might always pray and never to faint. No wonder we are taught to always pray and never to faint, because 
There are things we could have that we don't have because we simply did not ask. It's also no wonder, then, that the Apostle Paul instructed the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Now, certainly there are times that we leave off praying for a while, but we all ought to always pray. We ought to be praying about everything. Before you go to work in the morning, pray. When you're getting up in the morning and preparing your coffee, pray for the day. When your kids drive off to school, pray. When your spouse leaves for work, pray. When you're going about the tasks of daily life, pray. When you're around someone who is hostile to you, pray. When you're going to the doctor, pray. When you're taking treatment for a problem that you might face, pray. We overlook prayer, and it is to be literally the lifeblood of our day-to-day lives. Pray without ceasing. It is crucial to our everyday lives. As we saw from the theme passage for today, prayer really does help. Now, time is limited on the broadcast today, but think about a couple of examples from the Bible of prayer being effectual, prayers we might take special note of. Elijah is one example that James uses. He prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for the space of more than three years. There's also King Hezekiah, who was sick and nigh unto death, but he prayed to God, and God answered in the affirmative and lengthened his life, granting another decade of life to that king. But before we bring our broadcast today to a close, I want to give you a couple of disclaimers, caveats, or errors to avoid. Number one, I notice this more and more on social media. When there's a tragedy, it doesn't matter what sort of tragedy it is. A lot of believers begin commenting that the victims of the tragedy are in their thoughts and prayers. To be clear, it's okay that I might be in your thoughts, but I really want to be in your prayers. When this happens, when people say they're praying for others, skeptics and mockers begin scorning and mocking Christians for praying. Why do they do that? Well, they're rude and hostile to the Lord. That's why. They also many times say, rather than praying, Christians should do something. So let me say this. Prayer is doing something, as we've demonstrated here. They prayed for Paul in the church at Corinth, and it helped. So prayer is doing something. And second, along these lines, if we can do more, well, by all means, do more. But never be ashamed to pray, even if mockers scoff at you. And number two, an error to avoid. Some Christians think that prayer is merely therapeutic. They say, well, prayer aligns our hearts with God's will, but it doesn't actually impact things. But do you remember that verse in James 4? To the effect of, you have not because you ask not. So if they had asked, they would have had. It's amazing that modern believers, on average, remove God's sovereignty from salvation where it is in abundance and place God's sovereignty in daily events to such an extreme degree that they actually borderline being fatalistic. No, my friends, we can actually change the situations of our lives many times as we pray to God, a God who hears and a God who intervenes in human society. Lastly, and in closing, might I remind you to pray for each other? Pray for me. Pray for my ministry. Please, please, please pray for your own personal pastor. He needs it, I promise you. Pray for your church. Pray for your leaders, local and national. Pray for your family. Pray for our schools. Pray for those in law enforcement and in troops. 
Pray for those who suffer abuse. Pray, pray, pray. Pray for forgiveness and pray for revival in our land. Pray always and never faint. Pray without ceasing. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write. Let me know that you've received today's broadcast and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory of Primitive Baptist Churches is located at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes or online at our website. And finally, to contact Pastor Winslet, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.